the book of Colossians. Let's read the first two verses and then I'll begin from there. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in, or in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read a little further. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, in Jesus, and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. For the sake of time, we're just going to kind of do a little bit of a background, I guess, as we go into the text itself, as opposed to doing the intro up front. Uh, many of you probably have read through the book of Colossians many times. I want you to know this is the last book that I will have to cover in the New Testament before we start over. I'm very excited about that. Um, however, uh, I also the conviction is I, I, need to, I need to spend time in it. And so I don't want to you know, run through it really fast, but we'll see. I, don't, I think it'll take us maybe half of what Ephesians did. Four, four chapters in the book of Ephesians. One of the things that we know uh, always... In Paul's epistles, Paul wrote 13 uh, of the epistles, uh, maybe 14, uh, but we know of four, uh, 13 that he wrote. And generally speaking, in all of his epistles, he's a wonderful teacher. One of the things that he always seems to do is put the doctrine, the doctrinal truth up front, the things that we need to know, the things we've gained in Christ, what Christ has done for us, what we need to know concerning Christ and who we are in Christ. And then at the second half of the book, he gives us practical application as he has done also in the book of Colossians. And so Colossians divides neatly in that same way. The first two chapters would be doctrine if you would put it together. And in the last uh, two chapters, four, uh, three and four, would be practical application of that, as we'll see. One of the things I would say is that if Ephesians, listen, if Ephesians was one of the best works in the New Testament in regard to the church of Christ, then Colossians is the best work in regards, in the New Testament, in regards to the Christ of the church, as this book is all about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the theme, and we'll look at that in a minute, and, and which is so wonderful in so many ways. In fact, Colossians is one of the books that often I love to go to when, when, when either the cults approach me or someone who is wrestling with or challenging me in regard to the deity of Jesus Christ. I believe with all my heart, according to the scriptures, that Jesus is God. The angel said that his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. In other words, that the word uh, was with God, the word was, was God, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We know all of these scriptures. And so I love to go into the book of Colossians when dealing with these things. And one of the things that I love, and we'll look at it right in chapter one, I want you to just glance ahead and look at this as we we're just kind of building into this today. But in Colossians chapter one, Right around verse 18, excuse me, 15 is where we want to go now. He says, he, capital H, not because it's at the beginning of the sentence, but because he's speaking of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Basically, that means that Jesus is God seen 
or God manifested before our eyes in a way that we can touch, hold, interact with, and understand and see. In other words, Jesus himself said this in the Gospels, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you have known me, you have known the Father. Are you familiar with those scriptures? Okay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit never contradict themselves. The Holy Spirit wrote the scripture. Jesus himself said it, and God the Father confirmed it. And so he, we, we see that it's beautiful. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of, uh, over all creation. We'll deal with that in detail when we get to it because the cults get tripped up on that. For by him all things were created, notice, by Jesus all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things. And and by the way, this means even the principalities that we looked at in chapter uh, 6 of Ephesians that have fallen and are wrestling against us. They were created by him and are subject to him. We understand that, okay? Powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, notice, not just is he before all things, we'll get into that, but in him all things consist. Hebrew says everything is being held together by the word of his power. Hebrew says he is the express image of the living God. Jesus is God in such a way that we can understand a little bit more and interact with. Y'all with me so far? And this book is filled with that. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, just because it's the way my brain works and my heart works because I've always been drawn to the fact that Jesus is God because when I realized he was God, I understood grace more and it, it was the cross meant so much more to me at that point. If any old knucklehead could go to the cross, I'm thankful, but that's different when God becomes a man and goes to the cross. Now I'm broken and I'm, I am so, you know, uh, you know, oh, so thankful for that. Chapter three, look at it with me. Verse four. This is one of my favorites. Notice it says here, when Christ, y'all still turning. It should only be a few pages. Y'all doing a lot of turning. (laughs) What kind of Bibles y'all have, you know? (laughs) Little teeny Bibles where the book of Colossians is like 10 pages or something. (laughs) Get a regular Bible. Get a man Bible. It's it's it's, it's three pages. I mean, what's the problem? Okay. (laughs) We're going to run out of time. Chapter 3, verse 4 says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, the magnitude of this verse, we're probably going to spend a week on that verse, you know, in a few weeks. But it says when Christ appears, well, when does he appear? When, G- when Paul was writing this, he's already, um, he's already dead, buried, resurrected, ascended up into heaven where he's at the right hand of the Father. So when is he going to appear? He's going to appear at his return, Revelation chapter 19. And the Bible says that the armies which are in heaven will be following behind him. But the armies that it's speaking of is the church because it says here, too, when he appears. And, and notice he is our life, by the way. Literally, he is our life. I love that. Our life is in Christ. Everything that we are is in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him. Why? Because we'll be riding shotgun as he returns. I love this verse. It shows us that so beautifully. And I love this book for that reason, that this book is all about the Christ of the church as much as Ephesians was about the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the chapters lay out like this if you're taking notes in your brand new journal, which you, you should get because it's a good thing to have. You're going to get a journal anyway. Um, what you'll find is that the things that you'll purchase as we open our bookstore um, later in early this fall, everything that comes through the bookstore and cafe goes to supporting missions. So just wanted you to know that. And so here is the deal. Chapter one is doctrine. 
And it's about Christ's preeminence being declared. Christ's preeminence being declared. That's what chapter 1 is about. Chapter 2, which is also doctrine, but it, it speaks of danger. Christ's preeminence is being defended in chapter 2. It's being defended because it's, being, it's under attack in, in the area of Colossae. Chapters 3 and 4 is about duty. Christ's preeminence being, is, is being demonstrated, if you will, or it, it, we're going to learn practically how to live it out uh, before us. And one last thing as we get ready to dive in, let me break down chapter one for you, those of you who are taking notes so that you kind of see where we're going. Chapter one, doctrine, Christ's preeminence declared, breaks down nicely this way. We're going to see his preeminence first in the gospel message, and that is uh, the first 12 verses, mainly verses three through 12, the gospel message. Also, we're going to see preeminence in relation to in redemption, and that is verse 13 and 14. We'll see that. In creation, verses 15 through 17, as I've kind of already read that Christ created everything. Uh, Everything was created by him and for him. We'll look at that in detail. And then also in the church, verse 18 through 23, we're going to talk about that quite a bit, and I'm going to give you a preview to that today. And then in Paul's ministry, verses 24 through 29, those are the things that we're going to look at. Let's now look at verse 1 together, and you should take notes. Um, uh, Many people joining us since the last time we started one of Paul's epistles on Sunday morning. I won't do an exhaustive uh, review here, I guess, but you could always go on our app or website and look at the first week of Galatians or the first week of Ephesians to kind of get that. But I've got to do some of it because if you notice, verse 1 begins with Paul and whenever we look as a, as a New Testament, as an as a evangelical church in our time, the, the, the name Paul, it speaks so much to us about the grace of God and how powerful his grace really is in our lives. Because if you remember, Paul was first named Saul. He was uh, Saul of Tarshish who studied under one of the most famous Jewish rabbis, Gamaliel, and it was said that he was a brilliant student. They couldn't give him enough books to keep him busy, is what history tells us. And he was very zealous. Paul talks about it over in Philippians chapter 3. Very zealous for his Lord, for his countrymen, and for the Jewish faith. So much so that Paul set out to destroy the Christian church because in his eyes it was nothing more than a heresy which needed to be stopped. And so Saul of Tarshish began to uh, destroy the Christian church. In fact, he would do dragging people out of houses according to Acts chapter 8 and stoning many to death, putting many into uh, jail as he was literally persecuting the Christian church. He was a murderer within the Christian church. In fact, we find him in chapter 7 at the close, we find him standing there holding the coats of other men who were stoning Stephen to death, who was one of the early deacons in the, in the early church. So if you're with me, if you know what I'm talking about, let me know. Y'all know the rules. Okay, that helps me out a little bit. Um, also, in chapter 8, we see, in chapter 9, we see that he had letters from the high priest from Jerusalem to travel throughout the region, and if he found anyone who were in the way, being in the way was what they first called us. We were of the way as Christians. We weren't called Christians until later in the scripture by the, by the world, by the way. You know, we were then, we were the way they called us, but we called ourselves disciples. And then later the world called us Christians. And now we've adopted Christians. But what I want to see here is disciples. So we'll stick with that one. Okay. Disciples good with y'all. All right. Keep you engaged. 
And he was traveling, and if he would find any disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, he had permission to imprison or stone them, especially if they were Jews, imprison them, particularly if they were uh, Gentiles. And he was doing that with great success. And it was in chapter 9, as Paul was traveling on that road to Damascus, that it was at noon, his testimony later in the book of Acts tells us that the Lord Jesus appeared to him at noon, high noon. Where's the sun at high noon, y'all? Direct up. It's the brightest part of the day. And the Bible says that, that a bright light blinded him and he fell basically to, to, the, uh, to the ground. And the Lord spoke to him because Paul, Saul, excuse me, at that point still was wrestling with some truths. Listen. The Lord said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because the Lord always identifies with the church in times of persecution. If you're, if you're, if you're persecuting the church, then you're persecuting Christ. And as Paul was standing there, Stephen was being stoned. The Bible tells us that Stephen, as he's being stoned to death, the, the stones are bouncing off of his body and even his head. He gazes up into the sky. His face begins to glow. He says, I see heaven open and I see the Lord standing at the right hand of God, which is the only place in scripture where Jesus is standing at the right hand of the God. I believe to, I just believe somehow for Jesus, he's, he's, he's honoring the life of the, one of the first martyrs. I don't know why to say that, but because Somebody's dying for him. He's standing to receive them. It blesses me. And his face is shining because he's now in the presence of the Lord. It's like this glimpse in between. It's like the Lord pushed Paul's on the thing and slowed it down enough for us to catch a glimpse of him leaving earth, entering into the presence of the Lord. Paul is seeing this as he's heard the teaching. And Paul knows the scripture backwards and forwards. And so everything that Stephen said had begun to mess with Paul on the inside. Paul watches this whole thing take place. And on the road to Damascus, as he's probably still wrestling with it, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord, laying on the ground, being broken in his heart? And finally, Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads or, or against the pricks, depending on the version. And what that literally represents as a prick or a goad is what they would stick the animal to get the animal to go. Y'all know that, right? And so what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit in your life, Paul, is like a prick sticking you to, to get you to finally hear me, repent, and receive me. And he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? He gives in. See, Jesus knew that Paul was such one of those hard nuts to crack. And the only way he was going to get Saul to slow down and listen to the truth is to jack him up against the wall or literally put him on his back and blind him. And finally, he slows down enough to listen to what the Lord is saying. Some of y'all got saved that way. Some of us, I should say. You're running so hard, the Lord had to finally put us, on, put us on our back somewhere. Maybe yours was in the hospital. Maybe yours was in when you came to the end of yourself in addiction or whatever it was, and you couldn't live life no more, and finally you gave in, and he saved you. The whole point, as we look at the name Paul, Saul's, who was changed, his name was changed to Paul, and the blessing for us is that it tells us this. It tells us that, listen, he was a murderer, literally murdering the church. It haunted him for the rest of his life to the point that he says, I'm the least of all. I shouldn't even be named an apostle because I persecuted the church, but he served faithfully. And what it says to each one of you in the room today and me is that the grace of God is so powerful. There is nothing that you could ever do. And you got to understand this. If you don't believe this, you have a fundamental issue in your, in your belief, which may actually be hindering your faith. There is absolutely nothing that you can do 
while there's still breath in your body that would prevent the Lord Jesus from receiving you and forgiving you and making you a member of the body of Christ. That is the truth. Yeah, you can clap, brother. Because the, the thing we need to understand is that there is nothing that we could ever do to earn salvation. We don't qualify for salvation. Salvation is not based upon a system of works. Remember, that's man's religion. Salvation is based solely upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, and our faith and belief in that gospel message when it is presented to us. And so we need to understand that. And so Saul was saved, and his name became Paul. And now he's serving the Lord. And you got to understand something. What this says is, is, is as hard as he served Judaism to destroy the church, he is serving Jesus now to build the church. Now, that's significant because if I were to go to the room and take an inventory, and I know a lot of your testimonies, this room is filled with a bunch of people who were thugs and, and hootlums and pimps, drug addicts, drug dealers. I'm just being real. Somebody probably has an ankle bracelet on right now. And the only reason you hear is because the, the traditional Southern churches don't want you in the room because they, they know that you do all those things I just mentioned or used to be or whatever, you know. And some of you, a few of you actually probably grew up and live a decent life, maybe, at least in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul is our champion, Christ is really, but he is because this man now has become uh, a complete sold out lover of Jesus Christ and a servant of Christ to build the church and to be an advocate for the Gentiles and for the gospel of grace. And so we love that. And it's encouraging when we look at his name, it should encourage you that Jesus loves you. And maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord and you're one of those hard nuts to crack. He is diligent. If he's going to save you, you ain't going to run fast enough to get away from it. And you're not going to escape it. You're going to end up on your back saying, yes, Lord, who are you and what would you like me to do? And so uh, I just want to warn you now before it happens. Notice he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, most of you have been through these many, many times. This, this first uh, verse here, verse 1, most of Paul's epistles, many of them, he kind of addresses the church the same way, especially when he has to use his authority as an apostle because he's going to lay down doctrine, which is either going to correct something that's going on in the church or lay a further foundation. Because remember, the, the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Y'all remember that from Ephesians 4, or 4 3, 4, all of those, ver all of, 2, 3, and 4, actually. And, and, but there's a few, uh, there's a few, Letters like uh, when he wrote to the Philippians where he says, Paul, a bondservant. He didn't say an apostle because he was writing a letter to beloved friends who were supporting him in missions and ministry. And he just wanted to write to encourage them. And he says, Paul, they're a bondservant. When he wrote to Philemon to plead on, be, uh, on behalf of his friend to take another one back, he says, Paul, they're a, a bondservant. But in, in a few other letters, he did that. But in, in, in any time he's laying down doctrine that is crucial to the church, he opens up using the authority of an apostle. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, which I will not spend time on apostle today. You can go back and listen to many teachings where I address the apostleship. But apostle simply means one who is sent, meaning one who is sent by Jesus Christ. And to qualify for an apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to have seen the, the Lord and walked with the apostles and been trained by the Lord and seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And as in Acts chapter 1, it says, having gone in and out from the beginning, Paul brought in by the Lord as he talks about in, in 1 Corinthians. Now listen, 
He uses this authority because he has to address some issues that are going on there in the church in Colossians, which I'll get into uh, as we continue to go through this. Notice he continues, verse 2. If you're there with me, continue to look. It says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Beautiful words, to the saints. I love that. Not the New Orleans saints. They didn't exist. But when he says to the saints, the beautiful thing is I've talked about this many, many, many times that Paul kind of gives us here a definition of it, which I love. Notice he says to the saints, and then he gives us two things, and faithful brethren in Christ. And so in other words, to be a saint, to qualify as a saint, you must be in Christ and a faithful, faithful brethren in Christ. That means the word brethren includes both the brothers and the sisters. It's brethren. It pulls the ladies in. So those of you who love the Lord and are walking with the Lord, you're in Christ. You are a saint. If you grew up Catholic, this is good news because you may have thought you would never reach sainthood because in, in traditional Catholicism, you have to either, you have to both be dead and have committed a, 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 a miracle while you were alive. And uh, most of y'all I know personally, and I hadn't seen any miracles, but it's okay. <laughs> we're considered saints simply because of the fact that we're in Jesus Christ. And so I could call you all saints when I saw you in Walmart and it might come across a little weird, but it would be true. And so he addresses them this way, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Now, I want to spend some time here. He says, who are in Colossae? Now, it's important that we understand some things about Colossae as we begin. One of the things that Paul is going to begin to do as he goes through this is he's going he's to paint us a beautiful picture. And I want you to know right up front, that Paul has never, at least as an apostle, been to the city of Colossae as an apostle to do ministry. In fact, one of the things we're going to see as we go through this, and you can glance at chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to kind of say that. He says, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So he's writing a letter to a church in a city that he himself has not visited yet. You follow me? And that's very interesting because most of the letters that we read that Paul has written, well, all of the other ones were churches that Paul planted. He planted the church in Corinth. Paul planted the church in Ephesus. He planted the church in Philippi. You follow what I'm saying? And, and, and all of those things, or even the pastoral epistle, he planted the churches and then he put pastors there, Timothy and Titus, in order to pastor those churches. But Paul himself was directly responsible for and involved in the planting and nurturing of those churches. Here at the church in Colossae, the Bible's teaching us that Paul has not been there yet. In fact, the church in Colossae seems to have been possibly planted by a guy named Epaphras, which we see in chapter 1, verse 7. Notice it says, as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear, uh, dear beloved or dear fellow servant, I should say, who is a faithful minister of Christ, notice, on your behalf. So Epaphras is either the current pastor that's laboring in Colossae, or he is the pastor who actually planted the church and is still there laboring. <laughs> But it seems as though he now is in Rome with Paul. This is one of Paul's uh, uh, prison epistles. As Paul is writing and even including his name in the epistle to lend credibility to Epaphras and sending the letter back to Colossus by his hand, we believe. And he's doing that because of things that are going on there in Colossus. It's speculated by, and I believe, that 
what has happened here really is that the church in Coloss and in that region, Laodicea being mentioned, I believe that this church has sprung up as a direct result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which is only 100 miles away. Because if you remember in the book of Acts on the screen, Acts 19.10, notice it says, and this continued for two years. What are they talking about? Paul preaching in the, in the, in the school of Tiberias. Two years it went on. People were coming in day, throughout the day and Paul was teaching throughout the day. And it says, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greek. In other words, the the word of the Lord spread from Ephesus throughout all of Asia or Turkey, modern day Turkey. And so Colossus was located in southern what we call today Turkey, probably the result of maybe even Epaphras being discipled by Paul in Ephesus and then going out to plant the church in Colossae, which is stuff the Lord still does today. As we were in Apex, those of us who started with this church and were sent out here to Clayton to plant a church, and, and, and even though the pastor there was not involved in the, the work here in Clayton, but he has responsibility in the sense of that he was involved in the discipleship of those who came when we were there. Does that make sense? It's the same thing that happens here. God is still doing it this way. And so it's very interesting that this letter is being written there, and Colossae is situated in what we might call, listen, a tri-city area, a tri-city area. Go back to chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, I have great conflict, great conflict to have for you and those in Laodicea. In fact, he's going to mention later in chapter 4 some some similar things. In fact, um, he's going to say over there that when, when this letter arrives... Um, make sure the Laodiceans read it also as well as you read the, the one to Laodicea. This tri-city area consisted of, of Laodicea, uh, Heropolis, and Colossus. I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but I want to just tell you that. It was written to this region. But one of the things I found interesting from history, and y'all bear with me as I want to lay some groundwork. The interesting thing is that this letter was written somewhere between AD 60 and AD 62. Paul wrote the letter early AD 60s. History tells us that shortly after this letter was written, the area was devastated by an earthquake in which the three cities were destroyed. Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis, they were literally destroyed. Colossae was never rebuilt. It's possible that many of the inhabitants that survived the earthquake in Colossae ended up going to Laodicea, because Laodicea, history tells us, the city of Laodicea was rebuilt because they were so wealthy they could rebuild their whole city without any financial assistance from Rome. They were so wealthy after the earthquake, the Laodiceans rebuilt the whole city. And it's very interesting that this letter was written, and shortly after it was written, the church that existed in Colossians was probably dismantled and, and not able to continue on. Many of the, the, the members probably ended up in Laodicea. And Paul is writing this letter to deal with this, these heresies which are beginning to spring up. Bear with me for a second. Many, many, many heresies and false teachings were beginning to take place. In fact, in chapter 2, you can see, you can see the hints of it. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Beware of anyone that will cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Traditions of man, according to the basic principles of the world. And notice he says, and not according to Christ. Do y'all see that? In other words, 
beware because these things are beginning to creep into the church. These philosophies, these psychologies, these things that are based upon the principles of the world and church don't entertain this stuff because it's not based on Christ and it will begin to take you from Christ. He goes on to deal with and throughout chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Let no one judge you in food or drink or, or regarding festivals and new moons and Sabbaths and all this kind of stuff. And it gets all mystical and everything. And you got to do things this way and remember all these things and, and stuff in order to be real Christians or real deep. Verse 18, he says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight, notice, in false humility. False humility, but really being puffed up with pride but putting on false humility. And notice he says the worship of angels as they were getting into some even believe that angels were mediators between God and man within the church. And it was getting really weird. And it goes on and on. I won't touch on all of these now. And the church was beginning to entertain things as heresies were literally being birthed. And we'll talk about many of those heresies as we get into chapter two in that region. And then Colossus and Epaphras comes to Rome to say, Paul, this is what's going on. Paul's heart is broken for the church of Colossians in that area. And so he writes to both cities. Now, I want you to understand something about this. The theme of the book of Colossians. Listen, because I don't want you to miss that. Found in chapter 1. I'm jumping ahead. Verse 18, where it says, speaking of Christ, Chapter 118, and he, capital H, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, notice, he may have the preeminence. In all things, he may have the preeminence. Now, the very interesting thing for me, and the very interesting thing to me is the word for preeminence here. And actually, I have a translating comparison that translation comparison you can put up. The interesting thing about it is it simply means to be first in rank or influence. In other words, Jesus Christ is to be both first in rank within the church and influence within the church. No one is to have rank, if you will, or even be regarded above Jesus. Listen very carefully, church. Because I do believe that as we look at the hints of what began to go on in Colossians, which led, I believe, and we'll talk about it, to the, to the church in that region entertaining many different things, which literally changed their whole view. In fact, we get a glimpse of it in 3 John verse 9 on the screen. It says, I wrote to the church, but Diophrates, uh, who loves to have noticed the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Now, this is John the apostle writing. Could you ever imagine an apostle could write to the church? Um, and, 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 or, or apostles would not be received by anyone in the church. Do you, how many of you know that the apostles were the, if you would give ranks, the highest ranking officials in the church, in the early church? How many of you know that? Diotrephes wanted preeminence, and so he even would not receive them. The interesting thing, though, is the word for preeminence in chapter 1, verse 18, is only used once in the New Testament there. Likewise, in 3 John uh, uh, verse 9, the word used there for preeminence, which is a different word, is also only used once in the New Testament. And it means to aspire to preeminence, to desire to be first. It's very interesting. Now, stay with me for a moment as I'm, I'm about to close out and so we can, we, can, uh, we can wrap up. In this book, Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says this. He says, now when this epistle is read, in other words, church in Colossae, when you receive this epistle that Epaphras is going to bring to you from me, Paul is saying, 
and, uh, and you read it, it's read among you, see that it is read also in the church notice of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistles from Laod or the epistle, excuse me, from Laodicea. It's very interesting. Paul says, I want, I want it read in both places shortly after there's an earthquake, Colossae no longer existed. And so Laodicea rebuilds and, and the church in that region is, is, is basically in the area now and in the city, probably housed of Laodicea. And I think there's a picture developing here that I, I want to point to. Because it's Jesus who begins to speak as he writes in Revelation 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches. How many of y'all remember that? Y'all know the rules, okay. And the last one that he wrote, which was, um, and you, we'll talk about that extensively when we get into the book of Revelation. That'll be the next book that we cover. But it speaks of things that were happening during this, this time. The book of Revelation was written probably A.D. 95, A.D. 100. So, 35, 40 years after this was written to Colossians, Jesus has this to say to the Laodicean church. It's not on the screen, but it's Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Listen. He says, and to the angel notice of the church of the Laodiceans. And it's very interesting how the Holy Spirit uses the same language, the church of the Laodiceans. In the seven letters, Jesus often addresses the churches this way. In fact, in every other case, he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, in other words, I'm writing to the, the, the pastor of the church that is located in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. I'm writing to the pastor of the church that is located in the city of Smyrna. You follow me? In the city of Pergamos and in the city of Thyatira and all these places. But to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, it's very interesting he words it that way. He words it that way because Jesus is going to make a point that the, the church of the Laodiceans belongs to the Laodiceans, not to him. He's not involved in it. In fact, Jesus goes on in Revelation 3, 17 to say to the church of Laodicea, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, which evidently, according to secular history, is true because they didn't need nobody to help them rebuild their city and take all, all the people from the region in after the earthquake. He says you're rich and in need of nothing, but Jesus says, and you... And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's Jesus writing. That's Jesus' assessment of Laodicea in the region at that time. But to their eyes, they were rich and in need of nothing. They rebuilt their city. They were independently wealthy. Don't need nothing from nobody. Plus, they've given in to the heresies that 35 years late, uh, before that, Paul was pleading with them not to. Because what he wanted them to understand is Christ is preeminent and don't let anyone change your view. One of the consistent, uh, consistent things I see with all the cults and many false teachings is that Jesus is not who he says he is. They all take his deity away, reduce him in rank to something else, an angel or something other than God. Paul is pleading for the church not to ever do that in Colossus. So Jesus ends like this, Revelation 3.20. Jesus says this to the church in Laodicea. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock because I'm not in there. Y'all have a church that belongs to you, but I'm not a part of it. So I love you enough to at least stand at the door and knock. So he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus says to the region that Colossus was located in, to the church of, of uh, Laodicea, that I'm not there anymore. 
you, you began to leave me long ago. You don't need me anymore. And, I, and I, I read this, I think the book of Colossians is so timely because when I read, I think, and I see the picture that's developing, at least in my own heart and mind, is that, you know, we are living in a time where many are at this place right now. I believe there are many churches in America that Jesus is knocking on the door of because he can't get in because they no longer need him. And if nothing else that we get out of the book of Colossians, we, church, Calvary Chapel Clayton, must understand above everything else that Jesus Christ is absolutely the most important person that is present here among us this morning. And everything must be subject to him. Everybody must yield to him. He must be lifted up. He must be praised. He must be honored. He must be be respected. He must be sought out. Even when we do counseling here at Calvary Chapel, we point people to Jesus. We don't take them through two years of fooling around with stuff. You need Jesus as quickly as possible so he can save your life because man cannot fix your problems. And so the point is always, as leaders, as pastors, we're always saying, you need Jesus above all things. When we evangelize, we evangelize by putting Jesus out front, not any type of other theology or process or program. Jesus is preeminent in the church. That means he is first in rank and in influence. If you go to church and you see a bunch of stuff, but you don't receive and see and, 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 and experience Jesus, then it's wrong. And it doesn't exist. I think when I listen to Francis Chan, I think, which is one of the prophetic voices in the church today, I think that's his frustration that we can so easily do church without Jesus. It's so easy. Many churches exist and function without Jesus at all. When, when we um, meet in the morning, the elders and the pastors and, and overseers, we go before Jesus. We lift everything up to Jesus. We don't think we can do this. We don't we don't try to do this in our own strength, you know, and maybe sometimes we do, and he shuts that down really quick because he's faithful. And the same thing is true in your own life, that church must be about Jesus or it ain't worth doing, and it ain't worth going to. And quite frankly, if, if look, I'm like Moses was when he was talking to God. If you ain't going, I don't want to go, and if Jesus ain't going to show up, then I can stay home, you know, because he must be above everything else what our attention is focused on, not what kind of music they got and, you know, and all this kind of stuff and, uh, you know, and not, not, not the building and, and how well the building is. I mean, and I know that doesn't, that's not y'all's thing because, I mean, we got holes that we got to get done. And, and, we, and, and by the way, this is prime on the wall. We still hadn't painted the place. Um, so <laughs> we're going to get around all that stuff, you know, but that's not the most important thing. None of those things really matter if Jesus is not at the center of it. And so this book is teaching us that, that Jesus is everything. And so he says, as I'll wrap up verse 2, grace, because we're over time, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'll at least say that grace and peace, the interesting thing about the two of them, I was listening to one commentator, you know, grace, grace speaks of God's undeserved favor. And, and the Greeks would often pronounce a blessing, if you will, on each other when they would greet each other in, in, in that way, even though they didn't all believe in God. Um, we understand as Christians that grace is God's undeserved favor in our lives. We got saved by grace through faith, but we live daily by grace. And in peace, the Jews would greet themselves with, with, with peace. They would say shalom. Many of them still do. How many of y'all have been greeted with shalom? 
and peace. And so these things are wonderful. And so he puts the two together because God had broken down the separation wall between the Jews and the Greeks anyway through Jesus Christ and the church. And so he puts it in this order always, as Paul writes, grace and peace to you because we must have the grace of God before we can experience the peace of God. We understand that. See, it's God's grace that allows us to get saved and upon salvation, we have peace with God. We're no longer alienated and enemies of him. And we also experience the peace of God because Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. But it all begins with grace. Without grace, we can't have peace. And so now because of the grace of God, we have his undeserved favor. We also have peace with God. We have peace for the Christian that passes all understanding in every situation. We can experience a peace that is uh, more powerful than the situations that we may endure. God can give you an inner peace that you can have always. And he says, so grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's the one writing. So we have the Trinity again. And it's beautiful for us to begin to fathom all of these things. Um, but we, we got off to a good start. We got out the blocks is what, you know, we're in track. We got out the blocks. Now we're going to build a, a quick, pa- a good pace next week in verse three.